Welcome back to the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast for uh, the week of February 22nd, 2022. I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad, Principal Analyst here at Guidehouse Insights, and I'm joined today again by uh, with uh, Christian Albertson and Joe Janata. Um, Joe, uh, since you're relatively new to the group and we haven't had a chance to really hear much from you because of some technical issues the last couple of shows, why don't we start off with you today? Yeah, sure. So an article I came across um, is the first announced plan for an electric wireless road charging system in the U.S. So Israel-based Electrion announced this plan in partnership with the Michigan Department of Transportation, and it will be part of the um, Ford Mobility Mobility Innovation District um, in Detroit uh, at a previously abandoned train station. Um, so this is the first of its kind project in the U.S., but Electrion and a handful of other companies have had several similar test programs in Israel and across Europe. So this proposed project will stretch about a mile and will use inductive charging, um, which uses magnetic frequency to transfer energy to the vehicles. It does require a special receiver, which costs um, a few thousand dollars right now. Um, since this receiver is so pricey, it doesn't make a ton of sense for uh, consumer passenger cars at this time. So the main use case uh, initially will be fleet vehicles and mainly focusing on public transportation buses. Uh, buses make a lot of sense for this type of charging because they already have a designated bus lane um, and stop at bus stops so they have more time over that um, inductive charging station to gather charge for their vehicle. Um, overall, this has tremendous potential to um, scale down the need for larger batteries in vehicles and potentially make those vehicles more efficient. Um, hopefully, um, if this technology can be scaled up, the price on that receiver um, can come down and it would make sense for vehicle manufacturers to add it um in factory rather than uh, aftermarket for consumers just spend that extra couple thousand dollars on it. Um, So yeah, that's it for me. So um, has Electrion given any indication of what the cost is for the the roadway? We know the, the, um, the receivers that go on the vehicles add a few thousand dollars of cost, but how much does it add to the cost of building the roadway uh, to have this capability in there. So right now for a mile stretch, it could cost up to $500,000, which isn't totally feasible, feasible for many, um, cities or department of transportations who would be installing these roads, uh, road systems. So it's definitely an issue right now. Um, hopefully as it, this technology becomes scaled up, that price might become a little more feasible for those road builders down the line. Yeah, and that's you know that's particularly a problem. Uh, I'm going to be curious to see because where this is being done in Detroit is about 35 miles east of where I'm sitting right now in in, uh, in Michigan, and the the road you know especially this time of year uh, you know we experience um, you know what happens you know towards the end of every winter when uh, the as the water as you go through uh, oscillating between sub freezing and and above freezing temperatures the snow and ice melt and seep into the ground and then freeze again and pop big chunks of pavement out um, I'm going to be curious to see what the durability of this system is have they ever tested it in an environment like this before. 
Um, I assume some of the tests in Europe, I know they've done a couple in Germany, so I would imagine they have a similar issue there. Um, but it's certainly an issue if your road's getting torn up in the winter, um, that you might not want to install it in a, in a, those colder climates to avoid that issue. Okay. Um, what about, um, you know, uh, dynamic charging, um, as you're driving down the road, you know, can be challenging. Um, you know, if you've, if you've used a, a cell phone with, uh, smartphone with Qi um, wireless charging in there, you know that um, you, know, you have to get it positioned exactly right on the charger to, to actually get it to connect and, and charge. Um, you know, are, they, are they doing anything with the vehicles that are being tested on this roadway to help them with lane centering to keep, it, keep, the, road, keep the vehicle optimized over the, the charge coils uh, to maximize the charging availability? Um, I didn't see anything about that, but that might be a reason why buses make more sense as they are stopped at um, bus stops along their route, um, stopped over that charger for a long period of time. Um, maybe by markings on the road, they can direct the bus to be right over that lane um, at the time of over the charger. Um, but I haven't seen a ton of information on that when looking at this article. My yeah, it's definitely on- something we'll have to look into more. Ahead, yeah, my question. other question on that is is uh, kind of with, with what Sam's saying, with the condition of the roads and everything, even if it's not a pothole, if you have uh, two inches of packed snow going over the top of that, is that going to interfere with your charging? Or is, is it going to be powerful enough to go through through the snow and stuff like that? Um, I, hadn't, I didn't come across any of that uh information i would imagine it makes it harder just because it's harder to stay centered on that lane um but i didn't see a ton of information around there around that yeah i would think you know water or ice or snow you know might have some interference problems with the uh with the the magnetic field um that you you know that you do use for inductive charging um it it seems like yeah, I mean, in, in theory, you know, the idea of doing this, you know, sounds great because, you know, being able to reduce the size of the battery that you need, if, you, if you're charging it constantly as you're driving, uh, reducing the size of the battery reduces the weight, improves the vehicle efficiency. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later with one of my stories. Um, and it also dramatically can reduce the cost of the vehicles. Um, but uh, it, 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 seems like trying to do it dynamically has enough problems that I'm not sure how much real benefit there is. It might be more beneficial to have um, a, a static system at certain bus stops where the, where the buses are stopped for you know a couple of minutes at a time. Uh, companies like Momentum Dynamics have demonstrated this. They've, they've got pilot programs in a number of cities with charging rates of up to 200 kilowatts for dynamic charging with buses. If, have they, has Electrion said what the charging rate would be for this dynamic system? Um, no, they, they, I was looking for that number and I couldn't find it. So um, I'm not exactly sure, but it's, I could imagine it's an issue if you're on, only can install a mile long stretch and say you're going 40 miles an hour, you're only on that stretch for so long. It's hard to imagine how much charge could be transferred to the vehicle in that time. Um, so it's definitely an issue and something to look for moving forward in this technology. All right. Christian, any other thoughts on that one? No, I think we covered them this time on pretty much everything on this one. All right. Well, then, uh, why don't you tell us what's going on in the air? All right. So this is something that uh, I've been following for a while, and and, um, I have a paper coming soon on uh, 
sustainable aviation fuels. And this one kind of popped up in the news this morning with Airbus planning for a demonstrator for a hydrogen powered aircraft by 2025. So this is nothing new. This They've been working on this for a while. The thing that's interesting about it is um, they want to have a the aircraft flying by 2025 and in service by 2035. Um, so they're working with uh, their designers to create what they call a zero E passenger aircraft. These are um, be considered a midsize aircraft. They're small planes holding some 50 to 100 aircraft in them. Um, they want to have the design finalized sometime in 2022 with the first demonstrator flying by 2025. Um, they are working with their, with CFM, which is their engine builder, one of the largest engine builders in the world for aircraft. And to build these, these engines that are, uh, one can run 100% on hydrogen fuels. So the zero E stands for your zero emissions. Um, the interesting part about this, and, and one of the things that stood out to me is, is they mentioned in here that Boeing, who is the biggest competitor for Airbus, is concentrating on the other side of the coin. They're, they're concentrating on the SAF, the sustainable aviation fuels made out of corns and, uh, you know, biofuel type stuff. While, uh, Airbus is going for the hydrogen-based or based fuels. Um, both designers, or both companies, have have said that they're going to be using standard jet fuel by 2050, or uh, up until around 2050. So that means we've got about 30 more years of uh, not polluting, but um, the fuels that we're using now, the standard jet fuels before we go away from those completely. Um, the designs of these aircraft are going to be interesting. Um, one of the most um, popular designs that comes out for these from Airbus is a blended wing. Um, biggest problem with these aircraft is if you have your your liquid fuels or your liquid hydrogen, your storage is different and you do have to have the insulation on them and everything uh, to because it gets very cold. And... If you were to build it into a standard aircraft that we have today, you're going to look at that, those extra tanks taking up cargo space or passenger space. And that might be why they're looking at only a 70 to 100 passenger aircraft when you come to think of it, or 50 to 100 people, just because of the size of the, the tanks needed and where they have to put those tanks in the aircraft. So, but it'll be interesting to see if they get this thing flying and, and in service by 2035. What... Um, you know, for for an aircraft of that capacity, you know, seventy to hundred passenger aircraft, what kind of range would they be looking at <clears throat> running on hydrogen? Um, what, what's the maximum range of it? Well, the thing they're going to look at with something like that is you have to, if you're going to put seventy to hundred passengers, you're going to be replacing aircraft that are flying seventy to hundred passengers. So you're going to be looking at your uh, regional jet type. Air, size aircraft. So you're probably going to be looking at um, short haul to, to some medium haul air, or flights. So you're looking at about 600 miles or less, give or take. Um, so you, you, the beginning of this, with these smaller aircraft, you're going to be flying, you know, uh, 
Orlando to Atlanta or Atlanta to Denver or places like that, you're not going to be doing a lot of uh, New York to LA type stuff. You're going to be flying shorter routes on them just to begin with. Um, but again, this is their first first version of this coming out. If you know, if this one becomes uh, successful and is popular enough, they'll build just larger versions of it as they do with, you know, the A320, they, they build a version, bigger version of it that can hold more people and that can, you know, hold, uh, hold more fuel and therefore it can fly longer. So that's what gives you your A321. It's just a bigger version of the A320. So for something, um, you know, that has that regional jet type of capacity, that 70 to 100 passenger capacity, would that would it be realistic to um, still create an aircraft you know similar in size to the the regional jets we use today, or would this actually be a lo- a physically larger aircraft in order to accommodate the the hydrogen storage? Uh, depending on the design, if they use the standard uh, aircraft design now, fuselage and wings, it'd probably be a little bit bigger aircraft, around an A three twenty sized aircraft that would be used as a regional regional type. Yet, so shorter, shorter um, range. If they use a blended wing, uh, due to the 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 different aerodynamics of the aircraft and the and and the way the the blended wing flies with more economic, I mean, it's they have better lift. They can fly a little bit further than a standard, you know, aircraft right now um, on the same power. So you're looking at they could actually build it right about the same size or a little bit bigger than, a, than the, the regional jet. Um, I would expect something like this to be a three twenty size to start with um, later versions going larger. Um, there are designs out there from Airbus where it shows a, uh, a blended wing aircraft with the same wingspan of about a seven forty seven four hundred. 400. It's a, a, 350 to 400 passenger version of it. So um, the blended wing holds a completely different story. So we don't know if we're going to go there or not with this. So, um, but you can hold a lot more people in a blended wing than you can on a, on a standard uh, fuselage and wing aircraft. You mentioned earlier that uh, Boeing is focused more on the, on developing SAF. Um, uh, Yeah. I would just, you know, I would assume that, both companies are also looking at the opposite, you know, so Airbus is probably <clears throat> doing work with SAF as well. And uh, is Boeing also doing anything with hydrogen or are they just focused completely on SAF and, and maybe electrification? Mostly on SAF at the moment for Boeing. Now the, the interesting part about SAF is it is a drop in fuel. So any aircraft out there that can burn a standard jet fuel before SAF is, allowed to go out into their, their tanks, it has to be what's called a drop-in fuel. So it, there's no difference between the way it burns than standard jet fuel. So about 95 point, well, 95% or higher of the engines that are out there, jet engines that are out there, will burn SAF right now. Um, so going to a pure hydrogen is a bigger step than just saying, Hey, we're going to use SAF. They're they're The planes are, the engines have to be built a little bit differently for the hydrogen than just the SAF because SAF is just a plug and play type of fuel. 
is Airbus focused entirely on um, hydrogen combustion uh, engines, or are they also looking at uh, uh, at fuel cells as an alternative, uh, you know, to fuel cells to generate electricity to drive fans or props? I I have seen stories from them using it, looking at fuel cells as well. Um, this uh, this article this morning doesn't say anything about the fuel cells. It's just a hydrogen powered. Um, and this one here is mostly, well, yeah, this one here, they're using their standard uh, engine builder to build a jet engine to run off of this. Now, the electric side of the house, yes, um, uh, Airbus, God, I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. But yes, they are working on an electric aircraft as well. They're also uh, teamed with a couple other companies on um, the eVTOL aircraft, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, so your urban air mobility, pure electric aircraft as well. So, yeah, they have looked into that with the electricity and the, um, the fuel cells onto those as well. So, All right. Joe, any other thoughts on that? Uh, nothing for me at this time, no. All right. Then uh, let's dive into the stuff that I've got. Um, first up, uh, <laughs> going back to what you were talking about earlier with the uh, – the buses um, and the uh, dynamic charging uh, efficiency and the, the energy efficiency, the uh, opposite of efficiency, um, just because something is electric doesn't necessarily mean that it's energy efficient. And that would be the, uh, the GMC Hummer EV, um, which is the first of GM's new generation of EVs off their Altium battery and propulsion platform. Um, this truck was announced uh, in early 2020 uh, as a, uh, uh, as, as a new high-performance electric pickup truck. Um, <clears throat> and much like the uh, last generation of Hummers built in the, the 2000s, that I think the last of those went out of production in 2010, um, it's a big, brutish, uh, boxy-looking thing uh, that is not the least bit energy efficient. It was, it was an interesting choice by GM to decide to revive the Hummer brand in the electric era after it was the the poster boy for, um, you know, being anti-green back in the two, late 2000s. Uh, I remember there were, there were uh, a number of instances where um, environmental groups, uh, some environmental groups had actually vandalized uh, a bunch of Hummers on dealer lots uh, because they were so, uh, they used so much gas. Uh, the, the new one is, is definitely zero emissions, doesn't use any gas at all, uh, but it is by far and away the least efficient EV on the market today. Um, it, uh, in uh, a filing with the EPA, uh, GM revealed uh, a bunch of specs that they haven't previously talked about publicly. Um, because this thing is so heavy, uh, it's actually classed as it's a class three truck. Uh, so it's not a light duty vehicle, which means that they don't actually have to put the range and uh, efficiency numbers on the window stickers. They do with light duty vehicles, but the, the Hummer EV weighs 9,063 pounds empty uh, and has a range of 329 miles, which is good, less than the 350 that they originally targeted. Uh, but it has overall energy efficiency of just 47 miles per gallon equivalent. Uh, by comparison, the next lowest efficiency EV on the market today is the Rivian R1T, which is 70 MPGE. And um, a lot of the, the, the more efficient EVs, uh, including those from Tesla, 
VW, GM, Hyundai, and others get in the in the 120 to 130 MPGE range. Um, a big part of why this thing is so heavy is the battery. Uh, it has uh, the, the the total gross capacity of the battery is 247 kilowatt hours. The battery alone in this truck weighs 2,932 pounds, which is about the same as the Honda Civic that's in my garage. Um, and this this truck is also got a lot of other features like the four-wheel steering that enables the, uh, the crab walk mode that allows it to basically go almost sideways when you're going off-road and you want to go around a boulder instead of over it. Um, there's, uh, and, uh, air, or, uh, air spring suspension all around to lift it up or drop it down. Um, but, uh, because it's so heavy, <clears throat> it also has limited towing capacity of 7,500 pounds, uh, which is it's not bad, but it's not as good as other full-size pickup trucks. Um, the, uh, an F-150, um, with its maximum towing capability can do almost double that at 14,000 pounds. Um, the, and even the, uh, the Chevy Silverado EV that's coming out about a year from now, which is based on the same platform as this, um, will have a, uh, a towing, uh, initial towing capacity of 10,000 pounds and Chevrolet has promised a version that will do up to 20,000 pounds of towing. Um, the, the other downside of the Hummer, uh, is fairly limited payload capability. It's only got 1200 pound payload. Uh, so if you've got, you know, four, four adults, uh, you know, the average, you know, 180, 200 pounds each, uh, you know, you're taking up a big chunk of the payload just with your passengers and, and not much available for anything else in the bed. Um, and this thing is expensive. Um, the, the first edition model, uh, which is already sold out is chart starting at, uh, is going for $115,000. And, uh, even the, the cheapest ones, the cheaper ones that, uh, Hummer has promised, um, will still cost upwards of $85,000 when they arrive in 2024. I'm just curious on, on the weight issue. So, you know, it's like, yeah, it's got extra things to it. And, you know, but if you got 9,000 pounds and only 3,600 is the battery, <laughs> where's the rest of it going to? Because, you know, I look that's, at the web webpage and it's, yeah, your skid plates and all that fun stuff. But man, that's, that's like adding an additional truck on top of it. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a good question. Um, you know, we've t- I've talked to um, Nicole Kratz, who's the chief engineer on the Silverado, which is using the same platform, and and, sh- and the GM doesn't want to talk about the weight of the Silverado either, which we're estimating um, because the the um, the Hummer, um, the initial versions of the Hummer have a three motor configuration with a thousand horsepower. Um, so that definitely adds some weight there that, you know, there's a, a few hundred pounds extra there to add the third motor. Um, but, uh, it's, it's not clear at all really where a lot of this extra weight is. I, I think, you know, because this thing is designed as a, a high speed off-road truck, um, they have probably put a lot of, um, a lot of extra armor underneath this thing to protect the battery pack. When you're crawling over boulders, you don't want, uh, you don't want a sharp rock puncturing the bottom of the battery pack. Uh, so it probably has a pretty hefty skid plate on there, but again, there, you know, there's a lot of things on here. We, we don't know why this thing weighs so much. And I'll be curious, uh, if, and when somebody does a teardown on one of these to, to see where all the weight is, uh, you know, definitely a lot of features, but by comparison, a typical gas powered light duty, full-size pickup, you know, similar in size to this 
weighs about 5,000 pounds. Um, and you know, this, this is, you know, uh, n- almost double that empty. Um, so it's, uh, it's a good question. We'll hopefully we'll find out one of these days. All right. Uh, next up is, um, uh, on the opposite side of this, uh, another vehicle, another EV that is actually improving its efficiency, uh, which is the 2022 version of the Volkswagen ID4. Uh, the ID4 launched last year. Uh, the initial version of it had a range of 250 miles from an 82 kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, subsequent variants uh, had as much as 260 miles of range. Um, for the 2022 models, uh, VW has upgraded it. It still has the same battery pack, uh, but the top version now has an extra 20 miles of range, bringing it up to 280 um, with uh, an MPGE rating of 121, which is um, more about two and a half times as good as that, uh, as that Hummer. Uh, and even the, uh, the, the most, the, the lowest, the shortest range all wheel drive version of the ID four is rated at 245 miles. So they've, they've made some good improvements. They haven't said exactly what they've changed, uh, I've reached out to Volkswagen to find out. Um, my guess is they're probably using a little bit more of the battery capacity. They've probably made some changes in the control software to improve the efficiency. Uh, and they have also improved or bumped up the maximum charging rate from 125 kilowatts to 135. So it'll charge a little bit faster than before. Uh, and they've also added uh, plug-in charge capability. Um, Plug-in charge is a standard that's been developed uh, that essentially allows for something equivalent to uh, data roaming on uh, cell phones, where you can, um, uh, if you go to, you can set up your account uh, in the vehicle. Um, you know, today, if without plug-in charge, uh, if, if you want to charge at uh, ChargePoint or EVgo or Electrify America, you've got to have separate accounts with each one of those charging networks. So when you go, uh, you, you tap your, uh, your little uh, NFC tag or, um, or just pay with your card, uh, but then you have to usually pay a little bit of a premium uh, for charging. Um, with plug-in charge, you set it up once, and uh, the vehicle, when you plug it in, uh, it automatically identifies and authenticates the vehicle and, and charges one account so you don't have to mess around with managing all these different accounts. Um, the, uh, the Ford Mustang Mach-E was the first car to get plug-in charge last year when it launched. Um, and the Porsche Taycan has it as well. And now so does the, uh, the ID4 for 2022. Um, and the, the price uh, has stayed uh, roughly the same, starting at about just shy of $41,000 for the, the base ID4. Um, so uh, now what Volkswagen hasn't said yet is whether uh, if this is just software updates, uh, we don't know yet if uh, these software updates will be available to owners of 2021 model year cars. Um, if so, then that would be great because they'll they'll have an improvement in their in their performance and efficiency, um, and uh, uh, without necessarily have to spending any spend any extra money. And then uh, the uh, the final story I've got for this week uh, is also staying uh, in the Volkswagen Group. Uh, but it's not necessarily related to EVs. Um, the Audi um, is uh, starting with their 2024 models is going to start rolling out 5G connectivity um, on, on their vehicles uh, using the Verizon network. Um, and this, uh, this announcement comes on the same day that uh, – 
T-Mobile and, and other uh, cellular networks are starting to actually shut down their 3G networks, which is um, for owners of older vehicles that have 3G connectivity may be a problem for those folks. Um, some manufacturers like Audi have come up with solutions uh, for upgrades to enable them to transition from 3G to 4G and maintain their connectivity. But their Audi's future vehicles are switching to 5G. They won't actually be the first on the market with 5G. Um, that is uh, uh, actually happening uh, this year uh, from BMW with the new iX uh, electric crossover. Uh, that one will be the first in the North American market with 5G. Um, and perhaps by the time uh, Audi launches 5G next year, we'll also have some some 5G from other manufacturers uh, who have indicated uh, their intent to go that direction, like GM and, and Ford. Um, 5G is already becoming fairly common in China uh, in vehicles and in Europe, um, but uh, this uh, we're we're starting to see this transition. And one of the interesting things I, I had a chat last week with um, Paul Mohatra, who's the uh, Senior Director of Connected Services at Audi, um, with with the uh, uh, transitions from one generation to the next of uh, connectivity, um, one of the challenges in the past has been some some vehicles have uh, as have not been able to get upgrades, uh, and so people have lost a feature that they had in their cars. And so for new vehicles now, manufacturers like Audi are actually taking that into account now that they've been through a couple of these transitions from the original analog networks that the, the first generation OnStar systems used to 2G to 3G. Um, they, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing that as more and more vehicles are connected and, and people are subscribing to connectivity services, they want to maintain those services. Uh, so they're actually starting to design new vehicles with upgradability in mind so that um, when those transitions, those technology transitions happen, they'll have a pathway to upgrade the vehicles to take advantage of the new technologies. So that that is definitely a good sign. For those older 3G vehicles, um, is there any plan for manufacturers to switch those over to 4G or 5G systems or update the software, whatever it may be? Um, it varies. Um, it's usually not something you can do just with a software upgrade because there usually usually is hard, there are hardware changes. Um, they have not yet developed software defined radios for automotive applications that can handle this. So uh, there's usually a hardware change that's required. Um, some manufacturers do have um, uh, upgrade pathways for their vehicles uh, to go from 3G to 4G. Um, others have not. And I think it varies depending. Uh, I think one of the factors that they're looking at is um, looking at how many how many owners of those vehicles are actually subscribing to connectivity services, how many vehicles are on the road, how many people are paying for connectivity. Um, if it's a fairly small percentage, then it might not be worth the investment to develop that upgrade. Uh, but for others, uh, they are. Uh, so, for example, uh, Subaru, Volvo, um, Tesla, and, and others uh, have provided for 3G to 4G upgrades, hardware upgrades. Um, others like Audi um, have partnered with companies like uh, Mojio to develop uh, a solution that uh, doesn't it doesn't exactly up, uh, replace the hardware that's in the vehicle, but adds uh, an extra uh, adapter that plugs into the onboard diagnostic port in the car and then has software that talks to the vehicle software to get 
information like uh, you know when you when the vehicle's been in a crash and has uh, and the airbags have gone off, <clears throat> it can automatically call and notify nine one one. It can get vehicle data for vehicle health reports and, and a variety of other features. Uh, so uh, Audi is offering that uh, through their dealers. Uh, and then Mojio um, also has an aftermarket solution that they've developed that they offer through uh, T-Mobile. Uh, Verizon and AT&T also have similar offerings uh, where it's not not necessarily tied directly to uh, anything in the vehicle. You can It's a similar thing that you plug into the diagnostic port, has a 4G radio in it and, and a smartphone app. So you can um, get a lot of these features uh, directly um, through, through the aftermarket. So for most people that want to maintain connectivity, there are solutions available. All right. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, nothing for me. No, no, I'm good. All right. Then, uh, we'll wrap it up and, uh, say thanks to everybody for listening and we'll be back in two weeks. Bye. 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 Bye.